My agent called, he said he got some interest in my strip I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head 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 Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me is podcast... Pro- <laughs> what are you? No, no, it's okay. Keep it. You're the podcast producer. I'm the podcast. You're not the podcast. You're the podcast, baby. That's right. Is a deep... <laughs> Sitting there with his little ears and his whiskers, yep. a deep sigh. Hello, Hi. how hey. are you? I'm good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were just talking about Ruby. Yeah, Ruby's three years three. old. Oh, Holy oh, crap! Wow. Oh my gosh! Yeah. What are you doing for for work these days? I'm working at Reading Rainbow You're still. Awesome. Still is good. Still crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, hanging out with my new buddy LeVar Burton oh all the time. Oh, God. It's pretty crazy. That is really Like, he crazy. walks in, and we all just kind of freak out every oh, time. Oh, my so God. It's pretty cool. Didn't they talk about maybe doing... Are they going to re-release Roots or They're something like that? They're doing a remake of Roots. Oh. But he's involved. A lot of the original people are involved, so I think it'll be okay. Okay. Yeah. But it's... I'm not sure if it's a prequel or a or an update, so... They haven't really announced a lot of stuff. This is weird. It's kind of strange, but kind of cool. Because they they realize like there's there's like several generations who have no idea what that is. And it was it was so formative. It was so huge at the time. Oh my god. Oh my god. We have we we have a guest here. Oh yeah. We could talk about this forever. (laughs) It is uh, Corey Mandel. He is back. Corey, did you did you uh, was Roots a big thing for for you too when it was on TV? I was Really young, but I remember. It's one of the few things I remember when I was really young. Yeah. Just like, yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I watched every minute of it. It yeah. rocked my world. Yeah. I remember that so much. You know, like, like everybody would, like, apparently, like, traffic had decreased all over the country when Roots was on. Like, there is people, that true? Like, no one was out. Everyone was home watching Roots. Wow. Yeah. And then it became like the, the time of the television event after that. Yeah. Right? right. And then there would be all these big, like north and south and all this stuff oh, yeah, right yeah 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 um i i kind of skipped over those but yeah. um but the tv was like oh this is a good thing people will actually stay home it might <laughs> actually have been the first binge watching if you think about it because hmm. they i believe they had so little faith in it that yeah. they put it on every single night in a row right. instead right. of like once a week or right. you know and they were like let's just get this done with burn and it then, off right yeah. and yeah. then it turned out to be this huge phenomenon yeah. I think it was the highest rated show of all time at that point. at that time yeah so yeah. the very first binge watching yeah I would recommend to anybody if like watch this watch it with your kids oh yeah yeah you know if we were over 10 years old yeah like he walks <laughs> he walks in and we're like Kunta <laughs> like for real <laughs> do you really do that <laughs> yeah. That's he, so wrong. He refers to himself as Kunta oh all the time. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay, well, if, as well, long know, as he's in on the joke. Kid companies have the craziest humor. Do they? Oh, yeah. Do you guys go dark ever? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know. Like, in the house. Yeah, You're reading yeah. Rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> They'll kill me now. They're like, it's no, we not don't. on brand. We don't. That's not. No, no, we're totally normal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Adib had the job at Reading Rainbow until this <laughs> podcast. Um, it's uh, Corey Mandel is back. He, to remind everybody, is an award-winning playwright and screenwriter who broke into the business by selling a pitch to Ridley Scott. He's written projects for Wolfgang Peterson, Harrison Ford, John Travolta, Meg Ryan, Julia Roberts, Warner Brothers, Universal, 20th Century Fox, and so on, all the way up to Walt Disney Pictures, and so on. But what I'm trying to figure out is, how did I let you come back on the podcast, Corey? Hey. How, <laughs> what, what kind of idiot am I? Like, every time you're on the, on the podcast, Corey literally ends up stealing business from I me. I know. I know. It's crazy. Like, people be like, wow, you know, it's going to take your class. And then I heard Corey Mandel, and I'm going to take his class now. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I pay these people that's to say that. That's nice. Okay. <laughs> so welcome back, Corey. Thanks, Pilar. Jeez. I'm gone. Well, this is probably, since we're talking about roots and talking about how you know, television's changed, a good way to segue into what our topic was. Uh, what did you say? It was like how to capitalize on yeah, the golden cashing age? Cashing in on the oh, second golden age of television. I love that. Anything that starts with cashing in, mm-hmm. we got to go for that, right? Yep. And golden. And golden. Yeah. Cashing in on the second yeah. golden age of television. And you know, it's funny too. People are calling it the golden age and they don't know that it's the second golden age. Right, I'm right, glad you right. said that. Right. Um, what was the official first golden age? Was it, was it the Lucille Ball period? What, what was it? Oh, look, We're all looking at each other like, yeah, we knew it's the second golden age, but we don't know what the first one was. <laughs> we're so bad. What was it? Oh, my God. Where are our tiny computers that we talked to that tell us everything? Are we in the second or the third golden we're age? We're in the second. Yeah, because there was a lot of, it, it got bleak. It, it got for bleak years. from what, like eighty, right, to two thousand. <laughs> well, Seinfeld started to make things better. Yeah, there was also like some some random Sopranos, like Cheers. Sopranos yeah. is Sopranos the official the beginning, beginning of the of second, the golden, of the age. second okay. golden age. Yeah. So we had great shows, right. here and there, right? Uh-huh. But we didn't have like this this glut of fabulous dramas and, right. and just where the writing was elevated and, right. and it, you, you wanted to watch TV more than you wanted to see a movie. Absolutely. Right. right. That tide has turned where it's like, well, I don't want to see a movie. I would just want to stay home and watch 13 episodes on Netflix. Absolutely. It's going to be a far better experience generally. Right. Yeah. And, and the snacks are free. Yeah. <laughs> and so, no babysitter. That's right. That's right. So what's your favorite show on TV? Corey? Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, you know who we just had on? No. You know who's out right now? Did you hear the podcast? <gasps> David Nutter. He was the director right. of the, oh, the Red, Red Wedding, Wedding and the finale. And that's right. so good. We geeked on, wow. out on him really badly. But it's so great. Why, why is it your favorite show? I just, the acting, the directing, the writing, it's just, can't get enough of it. I love how it reflects politics. Right. You know, I've, I, I really like shows about politics. And seeing, you know, what you think is supposed to be all kings and queens and princesses, but it's really about, like, you could compare it to contemporary politics. It's just so exciting mm, in such mm. a geeky way. Yeah. Are, you a, are you a big fan? I am. I've read the first couple books, mm-hmm. and I watched the show, but it's not my favorite show. Really? So my favorite show is either Broad City or Silicon Valley. Ah, Silicon yeah. Valley is so good. <laughs> well, you should be like in Silicon Valley. Well, there you should have be like hanging one out guy. with. <laughs> you have their guy. <laughs> you could be the guy's like friend or yeah. like, come on. I've, I've had a lot of friends on that show. Really? Yeah, like oh. in little, you know, day player roles where they come in and be goofy and then you never see them again so it's kind of exciting yeah that's a great show yeah 
Um, and uh, if I could, do you remember the finale of the first season? Oh, yeah. If I could show that in class as an example of how um, sort of a mundane conversation or idea yeah. can sp- trigger the actual solution to a problem, right. I would. So uh, for everybody who's over 18, go look at the finale. <laughs> because what happens is they have like this, this random conversation. Then they start trying to figure it out on the board. Mm-hmm. And because they're figuring out the most disgusting thing ever <laughs> in this random conversation, they actually come up with how to save their, their, their com- entire company. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's so brilliant. Yeah. And like I said, I wish I could show it, but I really think people would be offended. Do. <laughs> don't you think like half the class would be like oh I don't. well they shouldn't oh. be they should because if be. they want to do this for a living then they they should not be precious about yeah. that material right yeah. i don't know yeah. i don't know i'm just guessing yeah well my favorite show because i love game of thrones but i have this like personal attachment to to nurse jackie oh i love nurse jackie did you see the finale yes i'm i'm still reeling i, I we can't say we can't even hint at I know. it but it was I, I was kind of actually depressed. It was weird. I'm like, it's just a character. It's just a show. <laughs> if anybody knows it, you should know it. And I was kind of bummed the next day. People were like, hey, what's wrong? I'm like, oh, nothing. Oh, no. You know, I don't want to say like, no, you're Nurse Jackie. Like, <laughs> just sound like such an idiot. I felt like, it was, without giving anything away, I felt like it was inevitable almost. Uh, you know what? To me. Inevitable in a very real way. In a real way, but not, but not in, in a TV the... way. Right. Which is why yeah. it was so shocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay, so now everybody has to lock their doors and now watch all three <laughs> of the things that we're talking about. I'm so, I'm so sorry. So, so Corey, yeah. how can we cash in on the golden age, second well, golden age of TV? Let's put it in perspective about what's going on right now. And so I've come to the podcast with good news, better news, even better news. So I'm a wellspring of good news. Okay. All right. So I was at a UCLA class um, in the film school that was digging into HBO, and Michael Lombardo came as a guest. Michael Lombardo, for those of you who don't know, is the head honcho. He runs HBO. This year, HBO will probably buy 200 original pilots. So 120 dramas, 80 comedies. To put that in perspective, HBO will buy more spec scripts than all the studios combined will buy feature spec scripts. And that's just HBO. Put in Showtime, Cinemax, Netflix, Amazon, AMC, ABC, CBS. You go through all of the buyers. There's never been more spec scripts and pitches bought in TV ever. Now you're talking about hmm. spec scripts in terms of original pilots. Yes, okay. and original. And most of it, most of the original material will be sold as pitches, which we're going to talk about. Hmm. Um, I know a growing number of students and former students and friends. They make their living selling original content. It's a great gig. You sell something in July and August. You write it in September. You get notes. You rewrite it in October. You get some more notes. You rewrite it. Rewrite it in November. You know by December if they're going to pick it up or they're not. You make a nice six-figure income for five months of work. It's not a bad gig. And more and more people are getting into the game. There's so much opportunity. So that's the good news. The better news is everybody is looking for new writers, unlike in the future game. They are fighting for new writers. Michael Lombardo said there's a couple of executives at HBO. Their prime objective is to find new writers. They're looking at 
blog writers, they're looking at new novelists, playwrights, spec scripts, uh, recommendations. They're fighting all the other buyers for new writers who can write pitch-perfect, authentic scripts. If you think about the Vince Gilligans and the Alan Balls of the world, there's only so many of them to go around. HBO is buying 200 projects. Most of the top people are locked up on projects. Hmm. There's not enough writers who can write to what they're looking for to fill the spots. Further, they're looking for new stuff. They're not generally looking for a remake or a slightly rejiggered version of a successful show. They want stuff. They want worlds characters and stories that we've never seen before. They want new, fresh voices. So there is competition. So this is HBO's problem, and this is really good news for your listeners. If you go back eight years ago, okay, HBO, their motto is, we're not TV, we're HBO. So they're not going to do CSI. They're not going to do their version of The Good Wife. They're going to do stuff you've never seen before. And their only competition was what? Showtime. Right. So they just have to prove they're, they're cooler than Showtime and they get the first look at everything. Three years ago, their competition is now Netflix, Amazon, FX, AMC. Stars even. Stars. Now, their competition are the networks. ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox. Hmm. They're buying stuff that three years ago only a cable company would have bought. We're not going to see it for a couple more years because of the development time. But what's happened is because of the digital platforms, Amazon, Netflix, everyone's so sophisticated. You're talking about Roots. People who are listening to this can go easily watch Roots. Mm -hmm. They can watch. People have seen everything. People know what's unique and new and what is just derivative of something else. Everybody wants something fresh and new. So all of the buyers are looking for stuff that's fresh and new. Now, there's certainly going to be Laugh Factory, three-camera comedies. There's going to be CSI spinoffs. But that's not, if for people listening to this, if you look at the people that sold that, they're not new writers. I've met with several managers recently, and they're saying the same thing to their clients. Unless you were a top, top writer, producer for a major sitcom, don't come up with a three-camera idea. No one will buy it. Because if you're a network and you want to buy a CSI-type project or a sitcom that's fairly paradigm-driven, formulaic, there's a million writers that can do that. So you're going to pick a writer who has a track record because you can have anybody do that. The way to break in the business is to write something that nobody else could have written, you know, to write a girl's pilot or Silicon Valley, uh, Veep, um, Breaking Bad, because you have no competition. If they like your idea, you're the only player because you are the sole writer of that concept. So everybody's looking for new writers who can write new worlds, new characters, new stories. And they can't find enough writers who can write to the level they're looking at. The other thing that's really great is what's going on now, as I'm sure you guys know in TV, is packaging, which used to only be done in features. So I'll tell you a true story. I know the writers, uh, I know the, fo the following two writers, I've got to meet them and they're great guys. It used to be that a writer would write a spec pilot or have a spec idea and they'd pitch it or the, they'd sell the script via their agent or manager. So a network or a cable company would buy it. 
and give a lot of notes and you'd rewrite it, give you a lot of notes, you rewrite it. Often by the end of that process, what you have doesn't even really resemble what you started with. And more often than not, nothing happens. It's, it's a numbers game. And it's rare that they actually would put the money in to make the pilot and test it. Even rarer that they'd pick it up and go to series. So you're selling material, you're making money, but it's, it's unlikely, statistically, that your concept's ever going to get on the air. So there's a manager at Anonymous Content who decides, I'm going to do this completely different. He gets a script from a writer, and he actually puts in Woody Harrelson and um, um, Matthew, McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey and the director. And what he does is he goes out to the buyers and he says, you can't buy this and develop this. This isn't a script. It's a TV show. Do you want to make it or do you not want to make it? Hmm. You have 24 hours to tell us. If you want to make it, what do you want to spend? And it's a competition. And Netflix wanted it. Amazon wanted it. AMC wanted it. HBO wanted it. And obviously we're talking about True Detective. So there were some writers who turned the script into that same manager, I think two or three weeks after this. And he said, let's do this again. So he got Steven Soderbergh attached as a director, Clive Owen attached as a star. But here's the thing from the writer's perspective. What happened within a week of turning that script in is it was a series. It was a committed series. They, I think two weeks after they turned the script in, they were literally in New York with Steven Soderbergh breaking the 10 episodes, and then they had three months to write it, and then they were shooting it. There was no development process. This was a TV show that they sold. I'm not at liberty to discuss the money, but it's very, it can be life-changing money in this situation. Hmm. Um, True Detective is $600,000 an episode. Wow. So literally writers can have their life change with one script. And everybody now wants to be, agents want to be packaging. Um, I was at an agency a month ago, and one of their writers just got staffed on a really big show and it was a lot of money, and none of the agents cared because the money's in packaging. Because agents can't be producers, but they can get packaging fees, and it's the nuances probably aren't important here, but just suffice it to say that the major agencies are paying the bills, keeping the lights on through TV packaging. It's, the money is staggering. So what agents are looking for is scripts that they can package. So if you're Matthew McConaughey or Woody Harrelson, why are you going to do a TV show where you get less money than you do in your future career? And the only reason is you really want to play these characters because you've never seen these characters before. You really want to be in this world because you've never seen this world before. So you look at the True Detective pilot, love it, hate it, whatever. I'm talking the first year. You've never seen those characters before. Yeah. You know, we've seen cop procedurals, but we've never seen those. Not like this. Not like this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, you, we've never seen a show like Veep. So if you're Juliet Lewis-Dreyfus, like, there's a reason why you're drawn to this kind of material. So that's the kind of material that people want to be writing if you want to get an agent interested. You know what's interesting? Woody and Matthew, get they have EP credits on season two of True Detective, so they're getting paid 
that was also part of the part of their deal is that was also part of what got them to do this as well (laughs) right but i i don't know them i know people that know them and while the money was important what you're saying is absolutely true i think what drove it was they wanted to be involved in this material they wanted to play those characters that was really what was at the heart of it because they could have packaged themselves with lots of other projects and gotten the same deal but yeah they i believe they get a nice back end for everything so they'll come out that's pretty smart yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) absolutely so you know it's amazing because you know writers generally don't want to write derivative stuff they generally don't want to follow formula so they want to write something original and something fresh and now in the second golden age of tv that's what everybody's looking for and that's how you stand out and that's what agents are looking for and they can't find enough writers that's the big complaint i get um, every time I talk to a manager or an agent is we can't find enough writers who can write to this level because obviously it's not just having a great idea, great character and great role. You have to execute on it. The writing has to be at the caliber that a Steven Soddenberg or, you know, Woody Harrelson wants to get attached to. And there just aren't enough writers out there that can do that. So it's, that's exciting because for your listeners, if they, if they're able to do that, or they can train themselves to do that. There's never been a better time to be a writer. Never been a better time. Because in the first golden age of TV, it was not open as much as it is to new voices. There's just never been a time where literally an unknown writer can change their life. But just one more thing I'd say is the catch to all of this is while there's never been as much opportunity, there's never been as much competition. Yeah, that's true. And... I, read, I recently read every single pilot that sold last year, and I'm starting to read the pilots that are selling this year. And if you look at all the pilots that sold last year, most of them aren't on TV yet. There is amazing writing. And the other thing is, they ju- if you look at the pilots that sold five or six years ago, most of them are following the same sort of act break and what, ha- they're telling their stories in similar ways. When you look at the stuff that sold last year, it's remarkable how authentic and original stuff is. They're, stu- they're buying stuff that's only two years. They're buying stuff that's 15 episodes or six mm-hmm. episodes. Like right now, what they're asking themselves is, instead of you fitting your vision to our paradigm, what's the best way to tell your story? And we'll adapt to that. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that you know, HBO would do a four-episode se- four series, like Olive and Kitteridge, that wouldn't have happened probably five years ago. So, I mean, I've read scripts by Pulitzer Prize-winning novelists like Richard Price. He's getting into the game. Uh, Academy Award-winning screenwriters like Scott Frank and Charlie Kaufman. Like, there's so much money in creative control and creative satisfaction that the best of the best are all jumping into this game. And what, what your listeners need to understand, or what I would suggest, is that that's the competition that they are being evaluated against, like it or not. If you can hold your own or come close to holding your own with those people, I guarantee you there are managers and agents out there that are looking to find you. Now, you mentioned something about, you know, what about your life can be the story. So I, I had a client uh, a couple days ago. I was reading her her script or her original pilot we were talking about it and then casually she mentions what her old job used to be 
And that old job, let me just tell you, her perspective and that old job is something so unique right. that I was like, why are you not writing about that? Oh, yeah, I was thinking about it. You know, so I basically assigned her. I'm like, okay, that is right. the original pilot. So, and I, I think that was a, a wise thing to advise because if you are new, mm-hmm. even if you're as good as those guys, mm-hmm. you also have to have something that makes it that, but this is your story. Right. This is, this all, in a way, it's almost your IP. Right. So. And only you could write this. Exactly. You're the only one with this insight. You were there. Right. So, okay, we've got this, this person, she has that. Let's say that she develops her original pilot and it's great. And now, based on her experience and the fact that she has a pilot to support it, what would she do next? Well, I think you skipped over the important, or I think the the reality is that having the perspective and courage to mine your own work experience, your own emotional experience, your, your own IP, I think it's a great way of thinking about it. That's the easy part. The hard part is figuring out how to write it in a way that's authentic to you and compelling to you, but also compelling to other people and to have those skills. So, for instance, Genji Cohen really wanted to write about the transgender experience in politics, especially within the incarcerated communities. You're not going to go pitch that somewhere, right? <laughs> no one's going to say, oh, that's a right. And it took her a while to figure out, she found the Piper story and she found a way of taking what she wanted to write and expressing it in a way that'd be compelling to other people. David Chase really wanted to write, and I'm only sharing this because this is all public information. He had a very overbearing mom. He felt like she was suffocating him. He didn't know what to do about it. It was affecting his relationship with his wife and his kids and his work. He was a TV writer. He wanted to explore this. He really wanted to write about this. One of the smartest guys you're ever going to find. took him two years to figure out a way to write about it in a way that would be compelling to other people. And that obviously was a Sopranos pilot. Uh, Matthew Weiner has a very similar story about why he wanted to write Mad Men for very authentic personal reasons. It took him a while to figure out how to write about it in a way that's compelling to other people. So I think the mistake that people make is they either think, well, what's a good concept? What'd be marketable? You know, what's a, like uh, Walking Dead but different? And you're just, there's nothing authentic about that. There's nothing, no one cares that you can do that because a lot of people can do that who have a track record. Then there's other people who say, well, okay, I'm going to do IP, something personal, something emotionally authentic or biographically authentic. And I see this all the time. They write these scripts that are so compelling to them. So I had a client recent, well, about six months ago. And she wrote a script. And the first thing I asked her, the first thing I ask everybody is, why did you write this? And she gave this really super articulate emotional answer. And it had a lot to do with her experience and her pains and her friends. And there's nothing on TV that reflects back her generation and her experience. And she had great answers. And then I asked her, why would this be compelling to anyone who doesn't have your experiences? You know, I'm not a woman. I'm not your age. Why would this be compelling to me? She just stared at me. And then she said, you know, that's probably why I'm not getting any traction out there. Hmm. So we worked from that perspective. And I was able to coach her through some sessions to find the way 
that her personal story could connect to other people. And at that moment, suddenly she realized how to redo her pilot and she ended up selling that. So I think, I, I totally agree with you. I think that was the absolute right thing to tell that person. But I think that there's a lot of skills that go into the intersection of what's really compelling to me and unique to me that only I could write and what everyone else is going to find super compelling and interesting. And to marry those two together is really challenging and takes a lot of skill sets. Um, and, you know, no, we're not going to have time to get into all that here, but you can, I have a bunch of that on my website, which is coreymandel.net. That's the big part of that's creative integration, which you can go back and listen to the podcast I was on, and there's resources on my website. Um, I teach workshops in those skill sets. Pilar teaches uh, workshops that teach those skill sets. So I think that's the key part, is being able to take that uh, and get it to a point where it's compelling to other people and yourself. At that point, I think what you want to do is you want to verify that that's true. So you either want to hire, you know, an excellent script consultant like Pilar, or maybe even hire actual readers and have them do the coverage that they would do. So it's not in the tracking system under the table. You want to verify. Most people at that point will realize the script isn't where it needs to be. If it is where it needs to be, then it's time to start approaching managers. And it's not that hard. Um, it's not that hard to network and find people that work at management companies and ask them to take a look, or anyone you know in the industry. Because um, you know anyone who works in development anywhere, they have these connections. The thing is, if it's literally the kind of script that people get excited about and start passing around to other people, so many people think that the reason they don't have a career is lack of access. And there's a lot of people that take advantage of that, and for money they will you know, do events or do things to give you access. It'd be like somebody saying, I really want to be a brain surgeon and what stands in my way is I can't get interviews at hospitals, but they haven't gone to medical school. So you can pay all the money you want. You can get those interviews. What's going to happen in the interview? You have to be qualified. And there's only one way that you're qualified in this industry. It doesn't matter. You know, I, went, I have an MFA from UCLA. Nobody cares. Nobody cares what you're educated. You know, nobody cares that you went to film school or didn't go to film school. I have a, a student right now who is married to a top, top tax attorney. He, this woman is beautiful, intelligent, and they have parties with all of the heads of studios, major directors. She goes to lunch with them. She could pick up the phone and get anyone to take her calls. She desperately wants to be a writer. She's never sold or optioned or been hired to write because her writing's not quite good enough yet. I don't care how good you are at networking, you're never going to have more access than this woman. And so it's about being getting qualified. And once you're qualified, I think the access part is the easiest part. Sure, you have to network. There's, you know, I'm not saying you just sit at home when they find you. But I think most people have it backwards. I think most people think the hard part is access. And I would argue the hard part is being qualified. And the way you are qualified is you can write a script that's pitch perfect, authentic, which means it's unique and authentic to you, and it's super compelling to other people at the same time. And if it takes David Chase and Genji Cohen and Matthew Weiner lots of time and skill and energy to figure that out, it's difficult, it's doable, 
And I honestly think that most people are lacking certain skill sets to be able to accomplish that, and they need to develop those skill sets. Okay, so now we're going to go back to this this client of mine, all right? And we're going to assume that she's worked with me, she's vetted it through other people, that it has become one of those pilots that is so compelling Great. that other people want to pass it along, okay? okay. Which, I, which is that what I think you're saying is okay. it's, it's not you have to say beg for access, it's that once somebody reads it, it becomes contagious. They're Great. like, you have to look at right. this, it right? Be, it goes viral kind right. of in it, the it, community. It does, yeah. I okay. agree. Yeah. Okay, so let's say she's at that point. Right, the phone's going to be ringing. So she's got the phone rings and a company says, uh, I, 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 I heard about your pilot. Mm-hmm. Let's say they read it mm-hmm. and they love it. Mm-hmm. There's still going to be a pitching a- aspect of this, right? Or would you say that she would be brought in for a pitch and then they'd read it? Which comes first, the Great. chicken or the egg? So if you've written the script, there's not going to be a pitch because they have the script. The great thing about TV is once, so that script that you're talking about mm-hmm. is your ticket to the dance. Right. Once you have a ticket to the dance, you now can be pitching your other projects. Not that project, but other projects. And so you don't have to spec other projects. So now you get to pitch. Basically, one script gets you, it's your medical school. You're qualified. And now it's pitching. And pitching's essential. I would tell people, I, what I tell my students and my clients is before you get a manager, make sure you have at least one or two, two is better, but at least one or two of these scripts have at least one completely worked out pitch and have at least two soft pitches, or the people might call them elevator pitches. Have all of that. Because what's going to happen is when your script goes out, you're going to suddenly get all these meetings and people are going to want to know what else you have and what else you want to be working on. So while their agent and manager is trying to sell your script, you're pitching projects. And you always are pitching projects. So pitching is an absolutely essential skill set. The first skill set is build a write a script that's your ticket to the dance. Once you get your ticket to the dance, pitching is absolutely essential. Because even when you sell something, you're always pitching in a room. But it also... Let's say in the case of this this pilot, and they like it, they would bring her back in to pitch out the season. I mean, to be, to pitch out the series, because even if they like it and they're thinking about it, they want to know well, how is it going to have a life? How is it going right. to stand? So, I would imagine that because I, I guess this is from from the experience of my other clients that mm-hmm. have sold things, that they're asked to come in and now they have to sort of work it out. Right. And you have to be ready to think really big picture beyond the pilot about what is the series going to be. So you also need to have some pitching. Do you need that, sure. that Bible ready? Or, I the, mean, the Bible or, comes when you work with a showrunner. Right. That, that, and then you know, right. that I means see. when like, you're ready to go. Uh, right. Now you're going to sort of... It, it, it's called a Bible for a reason because it's so fat with every single detail. Right. Right. But they have to know that there's something beyond. Right. Um, I mean, wouldn't you sure. say Absolutely. that also... Right, because they're not buying a pilot, they're buying a series. Right. right. So step one is training yourself to be able to write that script. Step two is get as good as you can at pitching and keep always working to improve your ability to pitch because that's going to always be essential. Now, uh, you uh, started your career in the pitching world. Um, mm-hmm. you broke into the business selling a pitch to Ridley Scott. Right. Uh, so you are, you know, a lot about pitching. Tell me a little bit about that and, and also sort of some general feelings about, you know, why you do this well. And <laughs> well, before I do that, just a little quick commercial, cause oh. I'm really excited about this yes. is that I, 
have never heard anybody say anything negative about you who oh. worked with you. And that's rare. So I've always wanted to She's teach. She's had all of them killed. That's why. <laughs> I've suspected that to be <laughs> true. That's my series. <laughs> so I've always wanted to teach with Pilar. And I'm really excited because we're going to teach a one-day master pitching class on, I believe it's Sunday, August 23rd. Yes. And I am really geeked to be able to work with you and to teach with you. It's going to be fun. It's going to be all day, 10 to 4. Yeah. And um, I'm going to, I'm more of a nuts and bolts kind of, kind of chick, right? I'm like, all right, here's your template. Let's fill this out and right. like talk about why we're hitting these certain kind of issues. Right. And then Corey is going to be talking about um, the stuff in the room. How do you get in the room? How do you break the ice? What's the small talk? What elements of the elevator pitch should you expand? The difference between selling and persuading. What do you do if you're terrified of public speaking? Right. <laughs> stuff like that. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely... I think it's going to be a really it's worthwhile gonna, day for people. I think so. I, I do. I don't have. I haven't had the ability in the time to teach a pitching class. I do a lot of pitching consulting, working with writers. So I've always wanted to teach a class. So and I always want to teach a class with you. In terms of, uh, so I'll tell you, uh, a true, two quick true stories that I think will illustrate um, one thing that it would be helpful for people to know about pitching that we'll cover in the class, but. Well, let people listen to the podcast here. So I'm going to tell you two true stories about two pitches that I did. Okay. So the first one is, it was a very long, elaborate, like a 50-minute pitch. And I was pitching, I pitched to a development executive who brought me into her boss, who is a producer, who's partnered with a major A-list talent. And I start pitching after about five to ten minutes she has her arms crossed, she's shaking her head, and her eyes are closed. And she literally looks like she's in pain. <laughs> I mean, I literally know that I'm inflicting emotional pain on this person hearing this pitch. And I still have 40 minutes to go. And it was the most painful, terrible experience. And then I'll never forget when it was done, the development executive turns to the producer and says, do you have any questions? And she goes, I don't get it. And the development executive says, what don't you get? And she says, all of it. <laughs> and then she turns and she walks out of the room <laughs> without even acknowledging that I was there. Wow. Okay, now the second story is a happier story. I did a project for a, an executive, uh, Scott Stuber, at Universal. It went really well. And then he got promoted to president of the studio. And I had an action comedy, but more comedy pitch. And I went in there and it was your dream pitch. Like, he got it immediately. He was laughing when he was supposed to be laughing. He gave me some ideas that were great. It was almost like two friends talking through a story. And he just, he was so animated and, and just told me how much he loved it. I sold one of those pitches. I didn't sell the other. I sold the first pitch. <laughs> really? And I didn't sell the second oh pitch. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Wow. And there's a, there's a lesson here that I wish someone told me when I was starting out. Because I got really lucky and I'll explain that in a second. But here's the lesson that I learned. And I think it's really helpful, especially for people who are self-conscious or not all that confident about pitching, which is this. So in that first example, there is a, there's a, um, so the way it works is I pitch this development executive and her job is to hear a lot of pitches and basically weed most of them out and only bring certain ideas to her boss and then her boss, she pitches those ideas to her boss, and then her boss decides if she wants to hear it or not. So that was that pitch. Now, that her boss, she, she was Ridley Scott's producing partner. This was the first pitch that I sold. 
So she's listening to these pitches and she's deciding if this is actually something I would bring to Ridley. Now, if you're an A-list person like Ridley Scott, your time is really valuable. So if your producing partner says you should take an hour out of your day to listen to this pitch and you're not blown away by it, that does not look good for you. She was stressed because right away she realized this might be a great idea for Ridley. Am I really going to put my neck on the line for this kid who has no track record at all? Um, how would I even explain the pitch? Because she has to sell the pitch to Ridley before she has to I repitch it. To it's, him. it's a exactly. game of it's, telephone. It's telephone right? Exactly. So, so I think what happened is she was so stressed. That's why she was acting that way. Right. Scott Stuber, I didn't know this, but they had a somewhat similar project at Universal. I think within 30 seconds, he knew he wasn't going to buy it. So I think he just relaxed. And he loved the idea. He, he liked me. We had fun. There was, he, there's no stress because he knows it's a pass. I literally hadn't even got to my car when my agent called me and said, he loves you, pass on the project. Mm. So one thing that's really important to understand about pitching is when you're in a room pitching, don't try to read them. Just stay focused, stay present. And what's really important is you're not selling. You're sharing something that you really love. It's like there's a TV show that you love and you're telling your friends about it. And if they, it's not their cup of tea, that's okay. That's really important because at the end of the day, most people, they think their objective is to sell the pitch and that's a mistake because you have no control over that. Your objective when you walk out of that room is for them to say, I'd love to work with Pilar. Even if this isn't the right thing, like I'd love to work with her. And so no one wants to be sold. And if you're in there trying to sell the pitch and then you, you sense that they're not really into it and that affects you, they know that. And then you just look like someone who's hustling and try to sell something as opposed to you walk in there with something that you love and you're sharing something that you love. It's probably not right for them. It might be, it might not be, that's okay. You walk out of that room and they're like, wow, that person is passionate. They really believe in this. They're smart. And they've really worked through the pitch. Pilar and I will, you know, in that class, we'll talk about what you need to hit in a pitch. And then they're like, yeah, we're not looking for that kind of thing, but we're looking to be in business with that kind of person. I was really lucky because I was doing improv training at that time. And one of the things, I thought I was going to be a performer. I didn't think I was going to make it as a writer. So I thought I was going to be a stand-up comic. Do you know, do you know Corey and I? Oh, right. <laughs> we took from the same comedy teacher. Right. That's right. And we ended up at, the, at a party together. And like years later, I was like, I think you were at this party. I think we were both <laughs> taken from a comedy teacher. Such a small role. <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing improv, and the thing that my teacher was, Cynthia Segetti, who was amazing, she, what she realized is that when I felt like the scene wasn't working, I bailed. I, like, I was there, but emotionally yeah, I would bail. You didn't commit. Exactly. Yeah. And she would stop the scene and go, you bailed. And she was relentless. And so I thought I was going to be a professional performer. So I, it was my mission in life to never bail. So there I am pitching to Ridley Scott's producer, and it's a 50-minute pitch. And 10 minutes into it, I mean, she has her eyes closed, shaking her head, and I'm like, she hates it. And a voice in my head said, just get out of here as quick as you can. You know, it's like high school, and you've asked the girl to the prom or on a date, and she's laughed at you. Like, you don't want to stand there and keep talking. You want to get home and forget it ever happened, right? So, like, part of me is like, just speed it up, leave out part of it. Like, I knew it was a pass. I knew there was no way she was going to buy it. And then another voice luckily came in my head and said, 
okay, you're not going to be a writer, that's clear, but maybe you could be a performer, so let's use this as an opportunity to not bail. So I was practicing improv training, Mm. and for those 15 minutes, I pitched my heart out, even though I knew this woman was disgusted by me and my pitch, (laughs) and they bought it. And if I hadn't been doing improv training, I would have bailed emotionally, Mm -hmm. and I would have sped up, and I would just try to get out of there, and there's a really good chance that I may not have launched my career, or at least at that point. So I was really lucky. So one of the things I would tell people is go in there and share something you're excited about. Know how to structure a pitch. But once you're in there, just be authentic, be yourself, be excited, and don't try to read the room. Because you don't know, if they look really bored, they might be really bored, and they also might be really interested. Don't bail. I like it. Don't, don't bail. bail. All right. Yeah. And don't bail on your rating either. Corey, thank you so much. And so I want to remind everybody, Sunday, August 23rd, 10 to 4, Corey and I will be teaching a class. It is on the On The Page website, onthepage.tv, as The Pitch. So mm-hmm. sign up for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you have any questions about it, you can, you can always email me at pilar at onthepage.tv or inquire at onthepage.tv. Or you um, could also, if you have any questions, you can email me at corey at coreymandel.net. And if you want any more information on some of the stuff we're talking about, check out the website, coreymandel.net. Awesome. And Adeep, what are you, uh, are you tweeting these days? I'm are tweeting. You, okay. Um, I'll be at UCB tomorrow playing drums for a one-man musical based on 12 Angry Men. (laughs) That is awesome. So, yeah, I'll be playing some drums. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Great. So that'll be fun. Have fun. It's going to be crazy Oh, my gosh. Do you think anybody will be taping that? Like, are you going to post a a clip of it? I'll see. I'll see if... uh, they're going to record it or not, oh but God. it's going to be nuts. All right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll break a leg. Yeah, thank you. Break a drumstick. Yeah. And uh, everybody out there, I really want to thank you for listening. I um, uh, Some people have donated to the show, and do I have their stuff in front of me? No. no. I'll just have to thank them on the next show. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. Um, but I really do appreciate Corey being here, uh, Adip producing, and sure. all of you for listening. So have a good writing week. 